A new era is unraveling before us, and conversation, data, and action are our only hope. Join us to learn together about the future of cities and how entrepreneurs are approaching our present-day challenges. The goal of this podcast is to unite real estate lovers, technology adopters, environment enthusiasts, and creative thinkers that are working toward achieving greater and fair collaboration for all. Come sit with us and discover how investing in these key initiatives improves our built environment, the public discourse, and climate change. We examine diverse issues through interviews and conversations where going off on a tangent is encouraged, hoping to help you become a more nuanced thinker and find comfort in data. Hi, this is your host, Edward Cohen. Today on Tangent, we have the opportunity to learn from the Chief Networking Officer at NYU, Professor Matthew Kassendorf, partner and chairman of the real estate group at Meister, Selig & Fine LLP, as well as Professor of Real Estate Law at NYU Shack Institute of Real Estate. Hi, Professor Kassendorf. Where does this podcast find you? Good morning, uh, Ed. I am working from home since the beginning of quarantine, but you know, doing the best that I can to uh, you know, keep the status quo, uh, staying in touch with my students, staying in touch with my clients, uh, and trying to stay upbeat about uh, the state of real estate and the state of the economy. Glad to hear you're uh, staying optimistic and uh, positive and as active as always in the real estate community. Not not even a pandemic was going to stop you from uh, networking. I shouldn't think so. Great. Uh, let's uh, jump into it. Let's talk about networking and building relationships in the distributed workforce era. How have you adapted to networking with industry peers and how are you engaging differently with clients this year? So my theory of networking is is that it's atomic and you take advantage of not only the essential relationships that you create, but then you use those to create good relationships with the people in the spheres of influence of, of the people in your atomic network. And I've always been a believer in uh, the genuineness of those connections, um, not necessarily networking clearly to make a deal or to find a new client or to find the source of money, an investor, a lender. Um, it's about creating relationships first. And one of the things that the pandemic has given us, and even through all of its uncertainty, is a commonality of empathy. We're all in the same boat. Um, we're all experiencing this for the first time. And I have found it comfortable and easy, in fact, to reach out to people, uh, no matter how close they might have been before the pandemic, to reach out and say, how are you? How are you handling this? Um, how are you feeling about it? How are your deals going? And that is a universal commonality that we didn't have before that makes creating relationships, it makes establishing relationships, it makes enhancing existing relationships that much easier when you we all have this new base of commonality about living through the pandemic and the changes that, that we have to face. Definitely, I think uh, the, the empathy part, I like very much because it's been a time where we have all lacked that the human element in the same room, however, We've gone back to to basics, I think, and and that authenticity of relationships, and uh, it's it's what we've been focusing on. So, I I agree that there's always a, a silver lining now that we are all in the same boat, pretty evidently going through the same challenges. Uh, doesn't matter where you're from, but uh, yeah, I think it could also be said that networking is being democratized 
for the benefit of more people. I mean, previously, the loudest voices or the extroverts in the room were better equipped to take advantage of in-person, face-to-face interactions, right? But now we have multiple mediums in which network to network remotely, right? From messaging apps, video calls, virtual reality meetups. And, uh, you know, funnily enough, a lot of these mediums have been around, but they were just underutilized. So what's your take? So the... um... I, I think the psychological term is disinhibition. And in the negative sense, disinhibition causes people to be more aggressive and, and say things they otherwise wouldn't say, because if you're not in a group setting, uh, the repercussions of you are throwing out you know, thoughts and opinions into the universe uh, isn't blocked and isn't immediately you know, argued against. But on the positive side, the disinhibition allows people who are shy, who have language issues, uh, who just don't have the confidence to get out and connect with people. It gives them the ability to step up, step up. And as you say, it democratizes the message. Everybody's got the same access to audio and video. And it doesn't matter what you look like, doesn't matter where you came from, doesn't matter what you believe in, you have you know, a freer ability without the potential for repercussion, you know, to get out there. And I like the notion that it allows people who, you know, would be less likely to come forward and make connections and, and interact, gives them the opportunity to do that. At the same time, we, we will suffer a little bit from the aggressive part of disinhibition, you know, in, over the internet and video. Definitely. I mean, uh, the pandemic has, it seems like it finally converted LinkedIn, where we are connected as well, you know, which I've been a devoted user lately into a professional version of Facebook. And I have mixed feelings about where it's heading. I mean, it feels like LinkedIn on one hand is trying to do too many things for too many professionals. I'm hopeful that Microsoft will be able to integrate all of its might and, and resources, including Teams, Office 365, their cloud, and LinkedIn together to offer a better experience to network and, and collaborate, right? But I mean, the, the political discourse has really infiltrated every corner of the internet and social networks. So, uh, you know, how can we keep networking online and or on social media or apps uh, while being so polarized, I mean, and, and locked in our ideological bubbles? I, I hope we can uh, overcome these challenges. Well, there's the disinhibition. And I like LinkedIn as a business tool. I ignore, you know, the aggressive political or, or social discourse. I don't know how, you know, you draw the line. Once the door is open to free communication, um, some people will take advantage of that. There's just, you know, a, a certain selfishness that, that some folks have. That's more important for them to have an outlet for them to espouse um, their views and try to impose them on other people. Not, you know, anything I'm interested in. So it's a terrific tool for connecting with people and um, I hope to be able to continue to use it. Definitely. About professional silver lining for me around this topic has been that, you know, attending events and listening to panels from the comfort of my couch is, is a real game changer, right? Both hosting and attending event costs have dropped sharply. So I've also been able to attend way more and make better use of my time. Uh, you know, instead of having to travel physically from one event to, to the other, I do miss the, the face-to-face interaction and, uh, but being able to switch between events when one of them maybe is irrelevant, uh, you know, it's been uh, refreshingly convenient and uh, more productive from how I see it. I think there's a much freer 
flow of information. The, the problem is there's so much that you have to edit it carefully and you have to prioritize your time carefully. More information is always better than less, but at the same time, you have to focus on the tasks that are in front of you. You're trying to do a deal. You know, it's nice to listen to an industry, you know, genius like a Sam Zell and, and hear what he's saying. But if you've got, you know, documents to review in front of you or, you know, a potential investment to underwrite, I think it makes it much more difficult to uh, prioritize your time and focus. So with, with that great flow of information now comes a new challenge of being able to uh, focus properly and, and prioritize your time better. Right. I mean, just uh, our, our attention is a currency in this, uh, the attention economy. And uh, I, I always prefer more information than less, like you just said. But I think we crossed a point a couple of years ago already that there's just, it's not about misinformation or disinformation. That's an issue too, but it's about too much information. It's just, I mean, it, the, the, I think the heart of the problem are, are the incentives of the social media platforms. May it be Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, even LinkedIn. I mean, the more outrage on their platforms equals more engagement and more engagement in the platforms equals more cashish uh, for shareholders. So uh, we just have to really make sure that those uh, incentives are, are modified or, or improved because, you know, it feels like we're different. We're in different planets sometimes and uh, it's not great. You know, in every mode edit, every mode of communication, you have to figure out who you're talking to and uh, what the purpose of that communication is. And if there is a preconceived bias, you know, in the message that's being delivered. And while sure people are out there promoting themselves and promoting their companies and their businesses, you know, that I think is an acceptable level of, of bias, but you need to figure out, you know, who you're talking to. I call it, you know, in, in effective communicating, I call it pitching to the catcher. Who are you talking to? You know, how are they going to perceive the message that you intend to give? or vice versa, how are they thinking about communicating to you? And if you give it that little bit of effort and you figure out what makes that person tick and understanding the words that they say, the spaces between the words that they're using, you can, with a little bit of extra effort, better understand the message. Um, and then when you get more quickly to the point of this is a, a genuine statement rather than a biased, self-righteous self-promoting kind of communication, you know, then you know to give it a lot of attention and give it the empathy and respect that it needs. If you then find that it's, you know, the opposite and it's, you know, megalomaniacal or selfish or, you know, somebody's trying to, you know, induce you to change your feelings, you can have that communication and you could be civil about it. But you also know that it's got a bias and a, an intended purpose, and you then perceive it and, and register it slightly differently. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I hope uh, platforms will start uh, rewarding this uh, genuine and uh, objective and good faith uh, conversations and messages, but uh, hard to tell. Uh, but I think that the pandemic has also forced every professional, every company, every real estate player out there into a media company, right? I mean, everyone has heard content is king. But I think, and going back to the beginning of our conversation, context is queen because we have endless now context and mediums available out there to engage with colleagues uh, or an audience or prospect partners and customers. So I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great time to be uh, creating content or finding your, your medium where your message or your 
uh, objective is uh, better suited. Yeah, it's interesting. We uh, have a you know chief marketing officer at our firm, and we did a lot in uh, early pandemic podcasting and interpreting you know the state of the changing law and you know with the PPP program and uh, employment issues and tax issues and obviously now real estate issues with you know a chunk of moratoria um, and other regulations affecting the ability to use sidewalks uh, and things like that and um, you know th there's so much changing that people need counsel so the ability to create that context and content for consumers of legal services or consumers of any service for that matter is very important. Yeah. And we've done a good job without getting crazy but by putting out pertinent, you know, not overdone bits of information. Definitely. I mean, inbound communication has never been, uh, I would say, cheaper and more valuable than, than ever. Uh, let's talk about real estate technology adoption, particularly with regards to transactions and closings. Um, have you changed or upgraded your tech stack this year or, you know, how, how have your uh, collaboration processes changed? So um, obviously, you know, ring lights and 4K cameras and, and, and good microphone technology makes those touches um, less fragile. And, and the less you have to mess around with the technology, computer technology, the clearer your message gets and the more efficient it is. Beyond that, you know, from my chair as a lawyer and a counselor and a teacher, you know, we, we have to be transferring lots of information quickly. So big, broad Wi-Fi bandwidth has been really important. Um, Dropbox technology is now vital, right? Because before the pandemic, we'd be doing closings predominantly live, you know, with big collators full of documents. And now you have to do that you know, remotely over the internet. So you need places to go to do due diligence at the beginning of a deal, to collect data on the progress of that transaction along the way, and then obviously to exchange closing documents and the ownership of property or, or in a mortgage refinancing transaction, you know, the 75 documents that, that goes in, you know, to a mortgage refinance. Yeah, I think a, a great example of a company in the right place at the right time is a Qualia which is uh, on the mission of becoming the AWS of real estate closings. I mean, they're, they're doing a phenomenal job getting all parties, like you say, involved in a, in a real estate transaction to speak the same language and on the same platform, streamlining and simplifying the, the closing of property transactions remotely. Uh, DocuSign as well has become indispensable, I think, for, for remote collaboration, just as you mentioned Dropbox. But yeah, tech brokerages in, in the residential space are also having their, their moment. I mean, with interesting newcomers such as the Orchard and Homelight and even Homey in the West Coast. And of course, Zillow, the 1,000 kilo gorilla in the room, which officially and finally declared itself a, a brokerage. But uh, I feel we, we all saw that coming. I heard an interesting uh, idea the other day uh, about touchless uh, showings where with automated locks, you know, people can go visit a vacant office or apartment, uh, even that without being accompanied by a broker. So there's technology out there that's that's being spawned to do things like that as well. Yeah, self tours. Yeah, they, they give you uh, permission to access the apartment from X hour to X hour with your cell phone remotely. Yeah. What a time to be alive. 
um, while I have you, and uh, it's, it's always a good time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, but there's better times than others. But uh, there's always a good time. Let's uh, let's uh, move on and talk about uh, how landlord and tenant relationships are being reshaped by current events. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear uh, some anecdotes on how you've been handling these tough conversations with clients. And uh, let's start with the, this paradox approach of real estate players trying to solve for uncertainty. Uh, why, why trying to solve for uncertainty is in the best approach to uh, negotiating and dealing during a pandemic? From that perspective, we are blessed in the real estate industry to have higher brain functioning folks in every chair in the business, brokers, lawyers, accountants, investors, sponsors of deals, build, current building owners, and they're always thinking. And they're always trying to make their investments better. They're trying to raise more money. They're trying to borrow at lower interest rates, reducing their costs of capital, always thinking about how, how to make the status quo better, looking at trends into the future. And this is something completely new. And the best or the most unfortunate story I have about trying to solve for uncertainty is a small uh, health club tenant of mine who opened the new business. It opened to immediate success, closed down during New York pause. But these are the finest of owners in the world and they couldn't bear um, the notion that they were closed and they couldn't pay their rent to the landlord because they weren't generating any revenue. And they immediately picked up the phone and they called the landlord and said, you know, we're obviously closed. We're not generating any revenue. We need some help. And the landlord said, I can do that. And in the middle of April, they made a deal. Uh, March's rent had been paid before the shutdown. Um, and the landlord said, I'll tell you what, don't pay April and May. And then June, when we all expect everybody to be open again, you know, you can start paying the regular rent and then you'll make up the deferral over time. And they said, oh, thank you very much. Well, guess what happened? June came and the gyms and the health club facilities and the private training centers were still closed. And they said, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? I hate the idea of not being able to fulfill my contractual obligations on the lease. And they called the landlord and said, we need more time. And the landlord said, I already made my deal with you. How dare you ask me again? Um, and they went from finding compassion and empathy to anger and resistance. And I think they tried to make their deal too soon. Now, perfectly logical human nature, but that story is emblematic of anybody on either side of the table, landlord side, tenant side, lender side, borrower side, trying to solve this problem before the scope of the damage, the scope of the pain, the scope of the dislocation is clearly defined. Interesting. And yeah, if you go into it with the understanding that this is temporary and it may continue, I think you can make short-term decisions. I've represented uh, landlords and tenants around the country in the most diverse industries, gyms and movie theaters and restaurants um, and, and ready to wear. And the dynamic has changed and, and people are willing to make these short-term deals, not knowing what's happening three months from now or six months from now, hoping that things get better, things get more definite, but even the most intelligent, the most higher brain functioning of investors, of participants in our business are not going to be able to solve for COVID. So we're, we're relegated to short-term horizons, short-term decisions, 
short-term fixes, which counterintuitive to smart people, but I think the only thing we can really succeed at right now. Very interesting. Um, in terms of uh, leases going forward, how do you foresee them uh, changing and are there more temporary or cyclical uh, changes or uh, you know, what features do you see that could stay on as more permanent in commercial leases uh, going forward when it comes to uh, tenant improvements, rent concessions, flexibility in lease length? So um, you talk about cycles. I like to make a distinction between fundamentals on the one hand and dynamics on the other. Fundamentals are the things that are supposed to stay the same. So if you, you know, buy a building at a five cap and you can borrow money at four, you have positive leverage. You, you can increase your return. That's a fundamental. What's dynamic is what happens to interest rates. What's dynamic is what is the supply demand dynamic, the leverage between landlords and tenants. And in a city like New York and all the major, you know, the, the major cities around the world, we have large populations, large supply, but larger demand. So those dynamics change, but they change slowly and in very small incremental pieces, except of course, in recessions where you can even in New York have a 20%, 25% market drop. Here, all of a sudden, we are facing one of the most precipitous dynamic changes you know, in our lifetime. Um, in the retail sector, the ground floor retail sector, for example, we, we were feeling you know, the beginnings of the sea change, right? $3,000 per foot rents are not going to be sustainable. They're making landlords rich, but they're putting, you know, national retailers who are paying those amounts or international retailers, you know, in the poorhouse and, and into bankruptcy. You know, take Madison Avenue, where you had rents over $1,000, you know, the market pre-pandemic um, was looking at, you know, $600 per square foot. So the fundamental that owner of a piece of property is going to want to find a the highest and best use for the space and be the next best tenant is absolute and fundamental. The dynamic is, you know, where's the lineup of tenants and subsequent tenants that we're accustomed to seeing, you know, in the space in this city, in San Francisco, in Washington, in L.A., in Beverly Hills, Columbus, Ohio. And the answer is there isn't that much demand anymore. And the leverage and the dynamic is shifting uh, to making the tenant much stronger, which will drive prices down, which will drive protections that landlords thought undeniable, like pandemics um, and the obligation to pay rent, force majeure provisions, something that we have to now talk about. Definitely. I mean, thanks for bringing force majeure because that was one of the next uh, questions I wanted to bring up. But uh, in terms of the threat of vacancy looming over commercial real estate, I mean, particularly in tier one office markets, like you say, in Midtown and financial district in Manhattan and I mean, San Francisco, which is going through a whole a set of different challenges. Talking about big tech, which have they have pretty much led the way announcing their shift towards a remote first uh, workforces, at least uh, until uh, next summer. Traditional office owners have also started taking a more flexible approach to leases. I mean, I uh, recently uh, read a report that Two Trees Management uh, in New York is offering uh, more flexible terms to uh, retain and attract tenants and are even open to leases as short as six months for startups, which I think, uh, you know, it would be uh, unthinkable 
uh, pre-pandemic where it was stand the standard was more three year to five year. It's uh, and looking at some numbers, I always like to look at numbers. Uh, tenant representative uh, Savills uh, they released a survey this month of uh, 250 technology companies in uh, major metro areas of uh, DC, LA, San Francisco, and New York that found that 82% of uh, these companies anticipate leading, needing less office space over the next uh, year to year and a half. And 55% of these companies plan to dispose existing office space over uh, that period of time. So certainly a, a very interesting uh, dynamic because it, it's just happening so fast, like you say, right? So uh, hopefully we'll get back on our feet and uh, landlords' expectations and incentives will be more aligned with tenants uh, sooner rather than later. On Tangent, instead of sponsored ads, we have Stimulus, where we dedicate a minute of airtime to amplify an entrepreneur building a business that's making a difference. As we have all been reevaluating our work-life balance, some of us have been forced into a new career search, and others are trying to integrate their passions. Our lives have been disrupted. We're rethinking our purpose at the workplace and questioning the paths not taken yet due to fears and roadblocks that are holding us back. In these introspective times, a coach that partners with you to unlock your personal and professional potential is invaluable. You may be itching for a change and staring at a blank screen, wondering how to make purposeful decisions and authentically align with your mission to impact the world around you. On today's stimulus, we have Ariel Saran, the founder and coach at Revel and Awe, a coaching company that supports early and mid-level professionals in identifying and pivoting into their ideal career direction, overcoming imposter syndrome, building confidence, and living into their leadership potential in every area of their lives. To learn more and get a free 30-minute consultation, that's right, free, please visit revelandawe.com slash tangent. That's R-E-V-E-L-A-N-D-A-W-E dot com slash tangent. If you are an entrepreneur or small business owner who would like to be featured in our stimulus section, email us at tangentcommunity at gmail.com. And now back with our friend of Tangent. Let's, uh, let's talk about commercial. And I just wanted to touch on the unique uh, delicateness of, uh, you know, the, the synergies and the relationships between landlords and rent and apartment renters. Because, uh, you know, as we know, the, the residential eviction moratorium in New York City uh, expired last October. Uh, we still have a moratorium in L.A. and other parts of the country until the end of November. And the White House also has a moratorium nationwide to ha to halt the residential evictions on uh, certain renters through the end of the year. But uh, just uh, the, the issue with, with housing availability and affordability, I mean, it's uh, it's really uh, way more, more delicate because one thing is you go out of business and you have to close your business. That's devastating. But being homeless uh, is uh, unquestionably uh, tougher. Just to bring up a positive light, uh, if you will, I read on The Real Deal recently on a landlord back group that uh, raised over $8 million for a project parachute in New York, uh, which helps some of the neediest New Yorkers facing eviction uh, due to the pandemic. And uh, like uh, we said, like we know the housing supply crisis and lack of affordable housing across New York and major cities has only exacerbated uh, this year. So uh, seeing this initi initiative from the landlord side really gave me hope about the future of landlord tenant relationships, but it also made me 
kind of uh, depressed that it had to come to this, right? So uh, please uh, share some words of uh, wisdom and optimism about the future of uh, apartment owners and renters. I think the dynamic that we're seeing now will drive market prices down. I think the the average monthly rent in a Manhattan apartment uh, has dropped below $3,000 for the first time in a decade. I'm sure that drop is equal across the board. And, you know, some rent is better than no rent for landlords. That's the fundamental, right? That landlords need to raise money. They need to uh, have leases for vacant spaces. And whatever the market demand is will drive pricing. And, you know, hopefully there'll be enough variation of available units, you know, across the spectrum. Some thousand dollar apartments you know, apartments between a thousand and two thousand a month, and then higher ones that will create opportunity um, for the landlord and tenant dynamic to level out a bit. It, it's been extremely diametric for a very long time. Um, and of course, without getting political, um, there is an argument that rent regulation actually makes that dynamic worse. It disincentivizes the the you know the HTPA. The landlord argument is all of that regulation now disincentivize owners to improve and increase the housing stock because there's no financial benefit to reinvesting in your assets anymore. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And yeah, we don't like to get too political here, but when it comes to real estate, it's so intertwined and especially housing. I mean, but particularly in New York, it does feel like, uh, you know, without pointing any fingers or name calling, it does feel like some uh, politicians aren't focusing on the on long term viable solutions for for the communities when it comes to providing housing and helping local businesses. And I mean, definitely tenants have more votes than landlords in elections. But, uh, you know, it feels like some decisions, especially taken last year with the new uh, rent regulation, uh, they were just pandering to uh, tenants, but to sticking it to the landlords and investors and, you know, hurting the New York real estate economy overall. Uh, hopefully we'll get some more uh, visionary and solidarity politicians sooner rather than later. At the same time, the state is probably one of the worst landlords, you know, in, in our geographic area. So it's terribly ironic. Got, got to lead with the example. I mean, we're, we're the mecca of real estate, right? Uh, <laughs> in some ways, technology. Listen, yeah. if, they could privatize, if they could privatize NYCHA, you know, and figure out how to improve that housing stock, you know, it, it will be the right delivery, you know, of the right services to folks who need it. Definitely. I mean, uh, we have to make sure we cover costs and everyone is paid fairly to uh, provide the services. But uh, yeah, I mean... It, You'll take an entire uh, community effort. Let's talk about the transparency in real estate. Uh, the industry's opacity and its complex web of stakeholders have uh, historically stifled innovation and hurt the uh, adoption of technology solutions that could uh, improve not only productivity and efficiency in our processes, but more importantly, how we developed and how we use our spaces. Uh, as you pointed out, the, the leverage or uh, this this time around has is been shifting more towards the tenant side. But uh, this, I feel this uh, opaque inertia hurts landlords and tenants alike. So has the dynamic changed and, and has the leverage shifted from uh, historically benefiting landlords to you know, a more savvier generation of tenants, if you will? Um, I, I, I think there's much more good market data. So people aren't going to be buying or renting in a dislocated information environment. So I think that's a very healthy thing. 
I don't think real estate as a, an investment class is ever going to be able to be perfectly transparent because the ownership is so diverse. You have private owners, you have generational owners, you have private syndicates, you have investment funds, you have publicly owned companies, all who have very different ownership goals and motivations. Some own for security, some own because they inherited it, some own for profit exploitation, some own for, you know, charitable and, and other, you know, non-pecuniary uh, purposes. And people have different timing. As much as we talk about, you know, especially in the NYU sphere, you know, we talk about the upper echelons of the real estate world, real estate investment trusts and the large families and the big funds, you know, and multi-billion dollar deals and portfolio transactions. The fact remains 70% of the real estate in the world is not owned by those big companies. And as a result of the diversity of that ownership, even in uncertain markets, even in down markets, even where you think prices may be declining, people have to sell. People need liquidity. People unfortunately die and need to liquidate those assets. Funds have contractual holding periods, right? So if you have a, an investment in you know, some nice asset that has to be liquidated because of the terms of that fund, you know, that partnership agreement between five and seven years, guess what? You have to sell. So in every marketplace, there's going to be supply of deals um, and there'll always be demand in deals. And I'm not sure that this universal adoption of you know transparent marketing and transparent pricing is ever really going to happen or really necessary. I think people are entitled to their their needs and wants and their desires and their timing. And if that creates what we call dislocations you know, uh, motivated sellers, so to speak, motivated buyers, motivated tenants or landlords, you know, th those are the dynamics that smart entrepreneurial real estate people can take advantage of. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense or exploit, again, not in a pejorative sense, mm -hmm. to make good deals. Very interesting take and uh, also refreshing to hear a different perspective uh, because uh, I do think there's a lot of benefits in uh, increased transparency, at least when it comes to, you know, uh, users of space uh, and uh, employees, uh, especially currently with the pandemic. I mean, I definitely see people demanding more transparency from their landlord employer as to how they are keeping their spaces safe and sanitized, for example. Uh, you know, if you're going to give your workers more flexibility in their schedules, uh, they will also like to have visibility and maybe even have a say in that decision making process. So, uh, you know, I think improved communication will be as, as crucial as ever. Professor Kassendorf, let's uh, get you into the discomfort zone. Uh, we want to challenge you to share uh, an experience that you had that helped you change your mind about a previously believed idea. Well... When I when I look when I think about that the the thing that I apologize for the most actually is is missing the severity of the downturn in both after '86 and and in 2008 I was convinced that in 2008 we wouldn't suffer such a terrible precipitous drop in real estate values because we had seasoned this thing called mezzanine capital mezzanine debt. And my hypothesis was if market prices go down, which they inevitably do, there's this new capital source 
called the mezzanine debt provider, mezzanine lender, who would be able to take over those assets in the event that the prime equity was wiped out because of precipitous market turn. And what I had missed out of that analysis is I thought that all MES lenders, you know, were real estate operators who were entering into this new, you know, this new source of capital. But it turned out that the vast majority of MES lenders were institutional and unable to take over and control these assets. So then when we had the downturn in 2008, they didn't just hold on to the assets at a lower basis. They had to dump them too. And we ended up with a double dip, you know, in real estate values. So, you know, I look at what can happen now, and I, I am still concerned, you know, that uh, there are a good number of mezzanine capital, private equity providers, preferred equity providers, um, who can, in fact, um, jump in or step in in the event that the sponsor capital gets wiped out by a drop in value, or in a better world, actually support you know, the viability of the asset while the original sponsor gets to gets through the pandemic and whatever the actual uh, depletion of value might be. But again, my fear is uh, that there are too many institutional players in that space who don't have the wherewithal or the ability or the desire to control those assets. And there could very well be if this economic instability, if this value uncertainty um, continues for a lot longer, you know, we could we could see some some real precipitous drops in value. You know, right now we're, you know, in the unknown area. Um, everybody thinks that if you have less revenue, uh, you're going to have a lower net operating income. Therefore, you're going to have a drop in value, value of your property, uh, but that it's temporary and that there's going to be a precipitous increase in occupancy, revenue collection, the ability to pay debt once there's a vaccine and, and once the scourge of this pandemic, you know, has an end. So, you know, what, what makes me uncomfortable is not knowing that there is that little cushion, you know, that I thought that that investment class would would create and, and can't create now. So uncertainty makes me uncomfortable. I see. We'll definitely have to gonna keep an eye in the next few weeks and months uh, to see how uh, we uh, get over this, but certainly uh, some me memories from 2008. But uh, as far as I understand, we are the banks are less uh, exposed to real estate, and and uh, when it comes to uh, appraisals and valuations, uh, they are more in sync than we were in 2008. But still, uh, like you said, it's uncharted territory, and no one really knows at the end of the day. You know, we're smart people, and we're 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 you know, urging and we're, we're driving for to create solutions. But, you know, short term fixes are OK right now. We don't have to extrapolate, you know, into any distant future um, or even medium term future. Let's deal with what's in front of us. Let's be as, you know, the best that we could be at whatever we're doing. Right. So I want to be the best lawyer and protect my owners and protect my tenants and protect my borrowers. Brokers should be out brokering and finding new deals and introducing people. Investors have this never-ending energy for finding opportunity. And I see those green shoots in the marketplace even today. Great. Yeah, like uh, Baron of Rothschild said, uh, the best time to buy is when there's blood on the street, but uh, too little these days. Uh, last but not least, Professor Kassendorf, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self starting a career in real estate law today? That's an interesting question. The advice that 
I would have loved to have had, had I had a mentor, you know, back in the day is figure out what your risk profile is, figure out how, how tough you are, because if I were a risk taking person, um, I probably would have stepped off uh, to the principal side of life and had all of the excitement um, and all the sleepless nights of an entrepreneur and an owner. If I were going to remain a lawyer, I'm fairly proud of the path that I took. I never wanted to be this big institutional lawyer doing all the biggest deals and getting written up uh, you know, every week for the next $100 million deal. I'm really proud of my path and the ability to help out young people along the way and to help out entrepreneurs. The energy level, the spirit, the camaraderie is so much greater, you know, in, in the entrepreneurial side of life. So it's it's made my work days uh, endlessly fulfilling. The highs have been higher. The lows, unfortunately, have been a little bit lower. I never like being around a deal that doesn't go well. So I would have figured out whether I had the gumption and the guts, you know, to sign contracts and sign on mortgage documents uh, and sign on leases as a landlord. And if not, I'm really proud of uh, of the path I took and the people I've held along the way. Very uh, satisfying to hear, been rewarding. I mean, you know, everything you do for the community at NYU and the, the students and alumni, uh, you're, you know, seeing you in a room and your, your contagious optimism and excitement is a... Uh, Always good to to have around Professor Kassendorf. Where can our listeners find you and uh, Meister, Seelig, and Fine? Good question. We've done a couple of uh, podcasts and, and other um, information links that are on the website at msf-law.com. I, I believe the couple of things that I've done for NYU are posted online uh, on the nyu.home.edu website. I've done a couple of talks with the, Z, with the dean uh, and participated in a couple of other webcasts. And, you know, I'm available. I've done a number of uh, private counseling sessions and, and teaching uh, sessions with various brokerage firms around the city during during the pandemic. Usually I'm at the Plaza or the Waldorf at charity functions, which unfortunately I don't get to do these days, but I'm, I'm around. We'll make sure to add those links to the podcast description. And no, for those of you asking, Matt will not come and entertain your bar mitzvah or wedding anniversary. So don't email him about it. I did get accused of making a really good speech at my daughter's wedding, however. <laughs> that is true. Speeches for what daughter's wedding. Uh, to end the show, I would just like to add that there is uh, nothing wrong with America that can be fixed by what's right with America. Mr. Matthew Kassendorf, thank you once again for being here with us today. Very interesting insights into uh, the present and future of landlord-tenant relationships and how to network in the remote work era. Thank you. My absolute pleasure. That is it for today. This has been your Tangent host, Edward Cohen. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with a friend. Thanks for listening and remember, stay curious and always be learning.